You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Evolution, Effective Product Development and Payments, and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and FI911. Well, welcome everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us for this live discussion. Uh, my name is Steve Warner. I'm the interviewer, the facilitator, some would say peacekeeper for this episode. And this episode is entitled Effective Product Management in Payments. This episode is part of a series by FI911, where we interview thought leaders in payments, fintech, and business. This conversation will be published on YouTube and as audio podcast episodes. For those of you unfamiliar with FI911, we are the newly formed sister company of Chargebacks 911. We offer a variety of solutions and revenue opportunities for financial institutions and payment service providers, including our Dispute Lab, which is a fully integrated dispute management platform for acquiring banks. These episodes will be published on the Chargebacks 911 YouTube channel and as an episode on the Chargebacks 911 audio podcast by searching Charge Forward with Chargebacks 911. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to our guest today. Our guest today is Brad Dillahunty. Brad is the Chief Product Officer for Chargebacks 911 and FI911. So Brad, first of all, welcome to our little FI911 podcast event. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure having you on. Um, for the benefit of our viewers and listeners, it'd be great if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is, how you got into product development, and, and what you were doing before Chargebacks 911 and FI 911. Great, yeah. So um, my name is Brad Delhoney. Thank you, Steve. Um, I actually have been in the industry, in the, in the payment industry, for probably about 12 to 14 years, um, give or take a few. Um, I actually started my career early on in the, uh, the agricultural environment under Monsanto's uh, label before Monsanto was acquired by many different uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies such as like uh, Pfizer and um, uh, pharmacy and so forth. Um, and then IBM came in and did the outsourcing agreement with uh, Monsanto and I was actually um, basically um, uh, it was basically transferred over to IBM as part of the agreement process as part of their tech world. Um, and then, you know, over the years, um, my job changed at IBM from, you know, from architectural design to product development to, you know, moving into transition transformation services, mergers and acquisitions, and, and really kind of uh, focusing on like the fintech world and mergers and acquisitions before I left IBM and then I went to go work at uh, uh, basically MasterCard. Uh, when, I, when I got hired at MasterCard, I, I started off in their um, uh, payment uh, systems with regards to IPS, uh, which is now called the MPTS platform. And then subsequently after that, I moved into uh, the dispute processing team 
and took over the, the development lead for um, their dispute processing platforms and then subsequently was involved in other things like the Ethica acquisition and, and coming up with the dispute platform strategies uh, at MasterCard before coming on board at FI91 and, and, and Chargebacks 911. That's great. Great experience in the chargeback sector or the dispute sector. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and obviously great knowledge in the product on the product development side as well. So let's use that knowledge, let's use that skill set you've got, and let's let's dive into this uh, title of the podcast. Um, Absolutely. So let's go straight in. What what do you feel are the key requirements for um, effective product developments in, in payments? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think the key the key strategy is to understand the ecosystem and understand um, the marketplace. Um, in the financial sector, uh, for years, decades, really, um, it, you know, there's not a lot of investments uh, for certain platforms. Um, specifically, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, you have network schemes that, you know, have been riding along the same rails for for decades, and then you have the FIs and, and companies that are, you know, using a lot of, um, in some terms, some of the old antiquated systems where their workhorses they still work. They're, you know, they really don't want to invest in them. However, with the change of times and the change of payment schemes and and new product lines and services coming in. Um, I'm really seeing a lot um, of conversation taking place with our with our FI partners about level of investments. You know, where do they need to actually invest in? You know, services like ours that come in and kind of do um, a you know an assessment in the in the dispute platform perspectives or even the the fraud side to say you know where are they lacking or what we need to do to bring them into the the next um, service level uh, going forward to years to come, right? So really, you know, what I would say uh, generally is that, you know, it's time to invest. There's there's so much things that are happening in the ecosystem. There's many different payment schemes that are taking place um, in the FI space. And, and a lot of the older technologies that have been around for decades that are workhorses that are still continuing to be workhorses are, are going to have to have an enormous amount of um, investment into them to uh, basically migrate over or even accept new payment schemes in the future. And, and how do you think um, financial institutions should approach that really important decision about how they invest their, their dollars? What, what should yeah. they be constantly looking internally or other other options as well? Well, I, you know, one of the, the key things is, is, is a, as, a, as a product person itself is that you look at your current product offerings and you see where the customer needs are. And then you actually build out a process to figure out you know, from a from a return on investment perspective, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, we're going to invest things in our company. We want to make a return on those investments. So there's there's key features of product development and strategy that you need to apply. The first thing is, you know, where are you going as an organization? What is your funding source, or where? How much money do you have available to fund certain activities? Um, you know, are you looking for investment opportunities? Are you looking for an acquisitional aspect to actually figure out how to grow your footprint into certain different payment types? And as a good product manager and a good, uh, like a chief strategy officer as well, is when you're looking at all those activities, then you actually kind of figure out, okay, are we really doing the right thing? So uh, I'll take example for like the dispute processing platforms that are, are typically within the schemes. You know, there are new rules and regulations that happen every single year. 
as a product person, you have to evaluate, you know, those types of changes and figuring out if your current system is actually going to be able to accommodate the existing rules and regulations that are coming in. Outside of that, then you would actually also look to figure out, okay, are there any government related regulations that are in place that, that are really going to tie into new solutions as well. So you have you have the return on investment, you have items that you want to look at as far as future revenue targets and goals within the corporations because you need to make your stockholders happy or, or you know, whoever the investors are in your company, whether it's a privately held company or a non-privately held company. And then you actually, long term, you actually, when you're looking at the actual products saying, okay, are these products going to provide value to your customers? Does your customer base really need them? reach out to your customers, figure out, okay, what are their current needs? Where are their current struggles? And then you can determine from a product line perspective where your next uh, avenue will be to basically drive out change and actually help your customers in the long run. Okay, I mean, reaching out to customers is, is a brave move, but I, I think it, I, I get what you're saying there. And it's, yeah. it's probably something that a lot of companies don't do. Um, just thinking about, internal and external resources that you can use when you're looking at product development. Um, what's your experience of companies using external providers, for instance, to help in this journey? And I, I do sense a lot of companies perhaps like to own the end-to-end -end solution themselves, but that may not always be the most efficient and effective way of doing it. So what sort of advice would you give in, in that respect? Well, it, it, it comes down to the types of models that you want to run within your company, right? Um, I remember back in the day, um, back in the day when I was actually at uh, Monsanto, is that in Monsanto at the time, they carried a lot of external vendors that that basically provided services. Um, you know, whether it was staff augmentation or whether it was pure development or or even new product lines and services where they're outsourcing to you know full blown solutions. Um, you know, do you as a company want to take a risk and actually do the development yourself, own the intellectual property, and then build out services and then maintain that long term? Uh, really, I think that's, that's it, depending on what your solutions are and, and who your key market is, you have to make a determination on do we actually, you know, acquire a company or actually buy services or actually, you know, um, do joint ventures with certain companies to actually bring that in-house? Or do you actually do all the development yourself, own your intellectual property, patent the information, you know, and then look for longer term strategies to actually gain additional revenue opportunities off of that intellectual property and continue to invest in that over time? Um, there's no magic uh, there's no magic uh, wand or ball to actually say, hey, this is what you need to do. Um, what I would actually look at first piece is the economics behind everything. Is it economically feasible for you to, to jump in and start building things yourself? Are you going to recover the cost of the development and actually have a longer term strategy to build up your business in order to, to uh, make that return on investment? You know, and then look at the overall opportunity cost, right? So opportunity cost is headcount, it's software, it's hardware, it's licensing fees. There's many different things that you're actually paying into. And if your bottom line at the end of the day is not um, in the green, then you actually have to determine if this is the right place to go. And then the biggest piece that I see that is a struggle from a product team and a product uh, management aspect is what price point do you come in, right? So as you are looking at the industry, make sure you're doing your homework. 
you actually have to go out and do analysis on, you know, if this is a brand new product, nobody's ever, never done this before, where do you set the price point at, you know, and then you have to say, okay, is this really equitable? Um, so, you know, understanding your market, doing the research, really kind of setting that price point so that your return on investment really plays into a lot of where you're going. But the biggest piece is understanding your market and where you're at. I mean, that's that's the key because if you, you could you could develop a great product line, take it to market, and it never goes anywhere because first of all, uh, it's either for a niche or your market uh, value is not very high based off of what the usage is going to be. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And particularly in payments, I think, where there is, to my mind, constant mm -hmm. change. Absolutely. Things are changing all the time. And there are a myriad of new players in this ecosystem now, all doing niche businesses, from what I can see, and introducing new ways of interacting, making payments, uh, and so on. So the whole world of payments is, is evolving, evolving dramatically. And, and I think one of the challenges that a lot of businesses have is trying to decide what their core activity is mm -hmm. and focusing on that and not allowing themselves to be distracted by something their clients might want, but that it might not be core to their own offering. So there are always opportunities to partner with external partners to provide that service without distracting the, the business from its core activities is would you agree with that is that something that companies should uh, be aware of and be prepared to do if, if partnering is in the long term a better solution than trying to do it all in-house you know what steve I, I think that's a that is a great a great question and I'll, and I'll i'll kind of break this down in a couple of parts so the first piece is is do you partner with um you know either third parties or other parties to actually basically um, provide that solution going forward, right? Um, the biggest thing that we have in this ecosystem, especially in the FI world, is subject matter experts, right? So that subject matter expertise is really going to help facilitate and, and basically grow your line of business with your products. So if you can drive out a product, say, say in the instance of like dispute processing, like what we do um, with regards to either a dispute lab product or, or other activities with the acquirer and the merchants and uh, even in, on the Mitch issuing lens, right? You have in this ecosystem, you have many different platforms can, that can do the same thing. However, when it comes down to it, you only have a small niche of subject matter experts that really truly understand the ecosystem and that understand how the world of chargebacks works, how the um, how the actual what the win rates are, or whatever, or what I would like to call, you know, where you're you're moving yourself from a disadvantage to an advantage in in the space of a chargeback scenario because the rules and regulations are very complex. The platforms and applications can actually help and provide assistance and actually say, here's what we can do to automate these things. However, when it comes down to it, the people that are actually doing it and the expertise behind it are always constantly evaluating the network rules and regulations. They actually are looking at new legislation that's happening in each region. Um, and really the cost of all this bid line of business is going up. Is it really feasible for you as a company to basically build your own shop uh, for say dispute processing platform as, a, as this example, and then retrain or train all these people and finding the right expertise to do this when you could actually go to other people like ourselves 
that actually say, hey, you know, we have the expertise. We've got, you know, many years of expertise on how to do this. We can help guide you. We can actually do the work for you, or we can provide new product lines and services that actually help assist us. You know, to me, it's not economically feasible for many companies to go out and build this on their own uh, without a partnership or understanding really having that a lot of the domain expertise over, you know, many decades and building out these platforms like we have. Um, you know, other things in the FI world as well. I mean, you know, they're very dependent on network rules and regulations. They're, you know, they have their own internal business processes. Sometimes these processes are very intense. And I'll give an example too, is that we still have a lot of FIs that are still very heavily reliant on fax software, right? Um, as the fax software has evolved over the decades, um, there's a lot of people still pushing paper back between one part of the building to another part of the building where they actually have, you go into specific financial institutions, you have somebody that's running with trolley that has, you know, a stack of two feet high paper that is going from one department to the next. And is that really efficient, you know? And that's where our job as product managers, actually, when you're walking around buildings or actually observing, you're really like, okay, we could really automate this process fairly quickly, help, you know, get run number number one, reduce the amount of paper that's in the ecosystem. I mean, we are a digital age, but also the headcount that it comes from actually moving that paper from one side of the building to the next, you know, passing out the papers, getting them in on the right desk. I mean, uh, you know, it's amazing to me that we still actually have people that are carrying paper back and forth between different offices in this ecosystem. So, you know, again, return on investment, it's, it's a level of investment that you want to participate in. So if you have 100 employees that you're actually doing and you can actually take off and about a third of that or even a, a two thirds of that by actually automating what business process they have, and actually reallocating those resources to other areas and retrain them to actually support other new product lines. I mean, look at the space that we actually have right now, Steve. We've got uh, we've got areas in digital payments. We've got QR payments. We've got different payment types like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency type of activities. Retraining those people and actually how to actually support those types of environments now versus post after the fact than when when everybody's struggling and, and it's a challenge. So to me, the time and investment is look at your internal business process as a product team, figure out what you can streamline, how you can actually roll out, you know, a process efficiently, both internally and externally, save your bottom line, come up with revenue opportunities that you're actually, you know, um, you know, providing new services for your customers as well. So that's my two-part answer to that. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good. Um, I'm just thinking of the guy who's moving the paper around the business because <laughs> that's what it used to be like when I started and I couldn't see exactly. anything wrong with it. But paper in those days equaled data, if you like. Yep. Um, and over recent years, I'm constantly been told by people like you on the product side that, that data is king and that accessing data is critical for any business. It doesn't matter where you are, but particularly in payments, it, it, it enriches the decision-making process Mm -hmm. and improves the whole business process so that i'm constantly thinking when i hear when i hear the product side of the business talking about data enrichment what sort of value do you think that can bring in the broader payment landscape for 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 for, for uh, uh, people that are engaged in in product development what what role does data enrichment play do you think in that well, yeah, that's a great question too. So I would say the more data, the better, 
Um, you know, we have new tools through machine learning and AI that actually can actually help um, your business lines by looking at the data, mapping data between multiple different parties or different platforms. Um, in, in the world of FI, when we talk about data, right? Many of our FI customers, and as well as uh, many organizations that I've been to, you have many different disparate systems. These systems are not talking to each other. Now they're not sharing data. You actually have, um, as an example, um, you actually have a finance system, you have a dispute system, you have a settlement system that is actually doing other things. And really the tie between some of those systems really is just one or two data elements, if some even at nothing. I mean, there could be even duplication of work across each one of these systems, right? Now, a lot of times when this happens is that they built one system over here and then they built another system over here and the two actually do X and this one did Y. And then they realize that, wait a minute, we're sharing data between the two, but the two teams never talk to each other or the development organizations or the product teams never really talk to each other or they acquired something and they brought that system in house and they said, you know what, we have plans to integrate that later, but that integration never happens because something new or better comes along or they, they really think that, oh, you know what, that system is really antiquated anyway, let's not really invest in that and let's rebuild that later. So 15, 20 years later, they're still running off that system, right? But that data is still sitting over there. And you have another system over on this quadrant that actually has similar data, but that doesn't have the enriched transactional data that's over here. So to answer your question is that the enrichment of data by basically pulling in data, different data into data sources to actually use, you can actually take that, monetize it. You can actually build out new services. You can actually show the value of this enriched transactions, both from a customer perspective. When we talk about customers, the customer could be anything, right? It can be as a consumer, it could be an issuer, it could be an acquirer, it could be a merchant. There could be many different things inside of this ecosystem. Um, you could actually even be looking at, um, you know, statistical analysis and providing data back and saying, okay, in the world of say ours, that's a chargeback perspective, you're looking at, you know, what is my win-loss ratio or, you know, what kind of data is coming in, right? And you're actually looking at enriched transactional data. The power of a, a receipt is really important too, right? So one of the things too is that those digital receipts that are happening, many people forget that they buy things. You know, back in the day, I'm going to age myself and probably you and many of the other readers, right? Is how many people still reconcile their checkbook, right? How many people actually write paper checks? So I remember back in the days when I was in my old accounting days back in, oh, I'm going to date myself back in the early 80s uh, when when you were when I was first learning. And, the, you know, again, I know that some people are uh, older than I am and even younger than I am that, you know, that fundamental of basically that debit and credit and how to balance a checkbook. And you write a check, you log it, you enter it. Now, when we move from the, the actual checks to a debit transaction, how many people went in and said, okay, well, every time I swipe my card, I went back in my checkbook and I actually started doing this. And now with the onset of new capabilities, everybody basically just checks their stuff on their phone, right? So, um, I, and I'll, 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 I'll say this in, in pure love. I mean, I have family members that are still basically sitting in old applications like Quicken where they're actually monitoring all of every single line that they've ever done. When you could just simply look in your transaction information in your bank online and say, okay, I recognize this. No, I don't recognize this. The ones that we don't recognize, that's the problem. 
that's where that data enrichment really plays into what we're talking about, right? So if you could click on a button inside of your, your ledger, inside of your bank application, and actually gives all the details behind what is actually the purchase versus just the purchase amount and the merchant that you may not know what it is, then you're like, oh yeah, let me, I did do this. This is, this makes sense, right? So you actually have the data and the value of that. The other aspect of that data enrichment too, is the big problem that we see in the industry. And what we've seen a lot is that you have a lot of these in-game purchases for like um, children and, and family members that are buying all this stuff that, you know, they may not know who's actually purchasing these things. And by enriching that data, it provides different data points to the consumer, as well as being able to pass it to your issuer if you wanted to dispute your charge or even the merchant can come back and say, hey, I've got your device ID. This is this is the same my device that actually did this purchase multiple times. Um, this is where we're seeing this. It's it's really not a, an item that for you to dispute because you actually did buy this. So that data enrichment is really going to be key in the future because there's so much data that's available, and, and it's really about representing the data in the best possible way in the applications that need them, so that you actually can show the value and actually really take some of the noise out of the ecosystem. Brad, that's great, and I, I know there are a few products in the market now trying to do that. Yeah. Um, I think they've got some way to go, but it's a great start that the, the schemes have introduced into the ecosystem in, in mm -hmm. recent months. Um, just thinking about product strategy and innovation. Um, as I've we've said earlier, that the, the way this payments ecosystem is changing is quite unbelievable, really. Um, it's, it's, very, it's quite dramatic. Every time I look on LinkedIn, there's a new, new business setup, won an award, doing something slightly different. So it's a fascinating place to be working in at the moment. How, how would you suggest product, product owners uh, drive strategy and in, innovation? What sort of thinking can they bring into their processes to, to help them with this? Because it, for me as a non-product guy, this must be a, there must be a lot of noise around at the moment. Mm -hmm in terms of where to go next, what to adopt, what not to adopt, and so on. How, how could, what, what, um, what guidance or recommendations would you give to, 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 to product people in, in this space? Yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing too is, is don't be afraid to dig into the technical details of the new technology that's happening, right? So with, with new product lines coming out, there's new product shifts and new development of new technologies. Product owners themselves or product managers or even um, strategy guys um, like myself, you know, if you don't actually have some of the technical know-how and technical knowledge um, or actually have a team of people that can help articulate that to you and where you're listening and understanding where, where you need to go, um, that's really going to be a big challenge for product managers in the future is that, you know, everything is tied to technology. Everything is tied to new technology advancements, whether you're, you know, whether you're back in the day of, of running COBOL systems where you're like, oh yeah, this is great versus new systems that are using microservices. Um, they're splitting things off into, you know, cloud-based solutions and microservices and, and, and really kind of itemizing each item um, and segmenting that data so that you can actually start really looking at the strategy behind, number one, where's your good data going to reside? Um, how are you going to use that data? Is the technology that you're doing, is it scalable? Because from a product perspective, Steve, you have to reinvest for the same platform about every three years, 
right? So three years after you've gone live with your platform, your platform is now aged. Um, it is time for reinvestment. It is in time for, you know, uh, not only reinvestment, but also modifications to the code or even moving forward. So part of your longer term vision is actually saying, okay, how do you get the, the longest um, life out of an existing product based off the current architecture and design, working with your technical partners and your, your technologist team to ensure that you are getting the most return on investment off of what you're doing. Because if you're, if you're building an application now off a technology that's like two or three years old, you're already behind. You need to actually start looking at things um, in the future you know, saying, okay, what new technologies are available? How can we actually, um, you know, capitalize on those new technologies where it makes sense from an investment perspective and then it doesn't become technical debt within five months of you actually getting it. Mm -hmm. So that technical debt is really what you're trying to manage from a product, but you're also trying to put out relevant products out there that actually have legs on their own where you can continuously reinvest in them so that they actually continue to make more money for you as an organization, as a company, so that you can re keep reinvesting on that or even changing how those platforms are actually working so that you can actually look at other revenue opportunities. So I, I think um, going back again, just looking at your question is that, you know, as a product manager myself, as well as a strategist, I'm looking at current technology that's out there, even upcoming technology. How do you streamline that really? You know, because the days of, you know, cloud-based computing uh, really kind of, uh, you know, going to a minimalist aspect of microservices type of scenarios, you're really looking at products of scale. Can you scale a product? If you're developing it for just a small niche, do you really need to invest for a large scale solution? Chances are no. But if that small application then has legs of its own, are you really going to be struggling if you want to make it to a scalable application? So it is so easy to make a platform scalable nowadays where you could actually have a good idea, bring it to a small niche market, but it's still an opportunity for you to scale in the future. And then put a little extra added investment into it to make sure that you're actually architected correctly. And the biggest piece too is make sure that when you are driving out technology, the technology teams that you have are critical to the success of the business, right? Because you could go live tomorrow with an amazing platform, but have so much technical debt because you actually rushed to get it out there that you're actually still at six months to two years later, you're actually re you're redoing the code just to make it continue to have legs on its own. And so you went live with a lot of technical debt, not saying that ever happens all the time, but I'm just saying that, you know, many times in the tech world, we actually try to get to the minimal viable product out going in the market and then adding into that along the way. So it can actually kind of recoup the investments of what you're actually participating or putting out there. Right. So it's a great question. I think um, I'm going to try and get technical death into my next email. I think that's, that's, yeah. quite, that's technical quite a debt. lot. Technical <laughs> debt is a, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. I mean, anybody who's uh, in our, in our space knows that the last thing you want in, in your platform is technical debt. That technical debt is just from, you know, definition perspective. So everybody understands is, is, is defects. You know, you, typically you have different severity defects. You have a sub one, sub two, sub three, sub ones is the most critical sub twos are the ones that you are not as critical, but they are actually your business impacting. And then sub threes are, you know, there's typically a workaround or it's a low hanging fruit or something that you really don't really need to worry about because it's, it's not impacting the performance or any kind of aspect around the platform. 
understanding where your technical debt is, um, not only from a defect perspective, but also infrastructure, hardware, you're looking at, you know, uh, licensees, licenses, as well as any other aspect of that's causing um, time away from your developers to focus on the real new product lines that you want out there. So look at technical data saying anything that's taking away your capacity to, to drive out new product strategies, new products uh, in the marketplace that actually brings in new revenue. That is what you want to stay away from completely. Um, and I would say you're never going to get there. It's never going to be Nirvana where you never uh, have zero technical debt. There's always going to be some, but you need to build that into your management life cycle in order to ensure that you can remove as much of the technical debt as quickly as possible. Wise words, Brad. Thank <laughs> you very much. I'm, uh, I'm conscious of time. Our time is up. Um, that's, All righty. Yeah, the time went very fast. Brad, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your input. Uh, there's some great information there. So, Brad, thank you for your time. Thank you, Steve. It was great talking to you guys. Uh, everybody else, happy program, uh, happy project and uh, programs out there, man. Get those things out there. Thanks, Brad. All right. Talk to you soon. And, that, and that's the end. <laughs>